0: We'll hear argument now in number 906113, Randall D. White versus Illinois. Mr. Peterson.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The issue in this case is whether the confrontation clause permits the prosecution to substitute hearsay for the live testimony of a child witness absent of showing that the child is unavailable to testify at trial. The issue arose in this case at the defendant's trial on the charges of sexual assault and other related offenses. The alleged victim, S.G., who was five years old at the time of trial, did not testify. Instead, the prosecution relied upon hearsay testimony that merely related S.G.'s unsworn out-of-court accusations against the accused. Based on this evidence, the jury found the defendant guilty of the offenses charged. The Illinois Appellate Court affirmed the defendant's convictions. The Illinois Supreme Court denied leave to appeal. And this court granted certiorari. This case presents conflicting considerations. On the one hand is the defendant's constitutional right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. The defendant's convictions were premised on the out-of-court accusations of a single witness. Because the child did not testify, the defendant did not have an opportunity to cross-examine his only accuser. The these, child-
0: these two declarations were uh, both admitted by the Illinois courts under uh, what one was a, considered, one set was spontaneous declarations and the other was uh, statements made while submitting yourself for medical examination.
1: That's right, Your Honor. On the other hand, is the state's interest in the welfare of the child witness. It is a difficult experience for a child to testify in a criminal proceeding. Of course, the same can be said for the elderly, the mentally impaired, victims of sex crimes, victims of violent crimes, and others. However, since our adversary system expresses a strong preference for confrontation at trial, this Court has held that competing interests must be closely examined. And any exception to the confrontation right must be narrowly construed.
2: Mr. Peterson, I I understand that in this case, uh, the child victim was actually in the courtroom.
1: That's right, Your Honor.
2: And I suppose that in Illinois, the defendant's attorney could have called that child for cross-examination.
1: Under Illinois law, he has the right to call Witnesses, as if under cross-examination. Yes,
2: and that was not done?
1: No, it wasn't.
2: Do you think there's a waiver here, then, of, of this so-called right of confrontation? I mean, that could have been asserted at the time.
1: No, Your Honor, there is no waiver. The, uh, all the hearsay testimony was objected to at trial. Uh, the defendant moved for a mistrial based upon the fact that the child did not testify. The waiver argument was presented to the Illinois Appellate Court and the Illinois Appellate Court found it necessary to reach the constitutional issue in what must say is a very forcible opinion. That constitutional opinion is now the law in the state of Illinois and its persuasive authority in other jurisdictions as well. And I submit it's the constitutional issue that is now presented here. It must be remembered that the state is the proponent of the hearsay evidence in this case and is the burden is on the proponent of that evidence to establish the proper predicate for its introduction.
3: What, it, what exactly did you want the state to do that it did not do? It had the child in the courtroom. The defense could have called the child for cross-examination. The state apparently made some sort of an attempt to get the child on the stand, and the, uh, the, the, the brief simply referred to the child as failing to take the stand, and I'm not sure why. I can guess, but I don't know why. What should the state have done that it did not do?
1: Your Honor, the predicate for establishing the admissibility of hearsay evidence under these circumstances is prior to introducing the evidence, the state must either establish that the child is unavailable or elicit that child's testimony from the stand. What we suggest the state should have done is prior to introducing this evidence, requested a hearing and presented evidence on the issue of unavailability so the trial court could make a finding At which point, the record would clearly show one way or the other if the child was available to testify or not.
3: If that statement that the child failed to take the stand uh, uh, had been supplemented in effect by a court finding that the child could not testify for whatever reason as a matter of capacity, emotional condition, and whatnot, that that would have satisfied the unavailability requirement.
1: Certainly. By a trial court finding, that's correct.
3: All right. Now, what if, the, what if the child had been available, and the only thing the state wanted was to use the hearsay statements? Was the state supposed to call the child to the stand and say, we have no questions, you may cross-examine?
1: The Confrontation Clause requires that the defendant be confronted with the witnesses against him. I suggest that that indicates that the evidence against the defendant must come from the witness stand, under oath, and be subject to cross-examination. You, mean they,
3: you don't mean that they can't introduce hearsay at all?
1: No, I don't. If the child testifies, certainly the hearsay is properly admissible. Or if she is unavailable, the hearsay is admissible. Well, what, what then
3: would, would, be, would be satisfactory to you? Would the state have had to call the child and simply uh, attempt to get the child to repeat the hearsay statements or, in effect, to testify from the stand what the, te- what the, what the child had said to the third parties?
1: Exactly, Your Honor. The, in the, state, in the
3: state has no option. It's got to do that.
1: The Confrontation Clause requires that the prosecution produce the witnesses against the defendant, and I suggest that means that they produce the testimony of those witnesses. Uh,
0: Mr. Peterson, uh, you're, you're assuming that even though there is a well-recognized exception to the hearsay rule in the law of evidence, nonetheless the Confrontation Clause requires that the witness speak from the, from the stand, So was, certainly in Inadi we held that was not true of declarations of co-conspirators.
1: That's correct Your Honor. So the,
0: you know, that is one place where the government would not have to show that they're unavailable.
1: That's correct and...
0: And uh, aren't, aren't these well-recognized exceptions to the hearsay rule too, the sp- spontaneous declarations principle and the testimony or declarations made while submitting yourself for a medical exam?
1: They are well-recognized exceptions. I would submit in this case the appellate court applied a broad interpretation of those exceptions. So what
0: is your authority from this court for saying that any time the state or government wants to offer hearsay, they have to show either that the witness is unavailable or bring the witness uh, to the stand? Confrontation clause. Well, but I mean what case is interpreting it?
1: I would suggest Maryland versus Craig, where this court balanced the competing interests that are at issue in this case. Craig, of course, concerned a closed-circuit television procedure wherein the child was permitted to testify outside the presence of defendant.
2: Well, Craig involved uh, a residual hearsay exception. That was the basis on which the state offered the testimony.
1: I believe that was Idaho versus Wright. Uh, Craig, had,
2: Craig was the television set.
1: Yes, Your Honor. Right. And in Craig, even though the child was under oath and subject to cross-examination, this court nevertheless held that the procedure infringed upon the defendant's confrontation right because he was denied the opportunity to personally face his accuser. And this court held that this exception to the confrontation right could be justified only upon the, a case-specific finding of necessity.
4: Well, I, I'm Still not sure how you answer the Chief Justice's question and how you distinguish Ionati. Because here, this case seems to be closer to Ionati because we have a well recognized, firmly rooted hearsay exception. And Ionati makes it quite clear that unavailability is not a requisite. So are you saying that we should cut back on Ionati somehow?
1: No, and in NADI, this court balanced the competing interests, but the competing interests in that case were much different. And NADI dealt with the testimony of a co-conspirator. Of course, co-conspirator is often antagonistic to the prosecution because he is often facing indictment himself, he is likely to lie under oath in an attempt to save his own skin. Under those circumstances, the necessities of the case indicate that the co-conspirator's testimony would not aid the truth-seeking process and perhaps more importantly, the prosecution cannot realistically be required to vouch for the credibility of the co-conspirator.
2: Well, On the Mr. other hand... Mr. In- Peterson, don't you have similar, uh, similar reasons at stake here? Isn't it more likely that the excited utterance made at the time of the traumatic event is more likely to be true than the subsequent testimony in court months or perhaps years later? And the same with... Uh, statements made to obtain medical treatment, speaking generally.
1: Generally? uh, I, I,
2: I think the justification for both of those hearsay exceptions would be that those statements are more likely to be true than anything that would be produced in court.
1: Certainly the hearsay rule recognizes that these exceptions, hearsay is more reliable than hearsay generally. However, the Confrontation Clause does not guarantee the defendant reliable evidence or even the best evidence. It guarantees him the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him, and no matter how reliable the evidence is, there's no justification for denying the defendant his right to present a defense.
2: Well, the defendant here had every opportunity to call this child.
1: Well, he could call the child under the compulsory process clause, but there's two separate rights. There's compulsory process for calling witnesses in your favor, and then there's the confrontation right, which requires that the defendant be confronted with the witnesses against him. And I
2: suppose if you were correct, then it wouldn't even be possible to offer business records in any criminal case. That would never come in.
1: Well, business records, uh, I don't think you can characterize that as a witness against. In this case, the child witness upon whose accusations the state is relying to obtain the defendant's conviction is certainly a witness against the accused. We're dealing with accusatory testimony. In dealing with business records and some other exceptions, we're not dealing with accusatory testimony, and it's questionable whether the confrontation clause is even applicable in those situations.
5: Mr. Peterson, you're you're seeing to rely on on the constitutional provision, but... The constitutional provision doesn't say that you have a right to be confronted with the witnesses against you except where the information is reliable.
1: That's right. Your Honor.
5: So if it means what you say, I don't know how we get the right to balance the interests that you're talking about and say, well, some hearsay exceptions are okay because although we don't give them the right to confront the witnesses against them, that's okay because we think the information is reliable. Where do, where do we get that kind of a right from?
1: Personally, I tend to agree with you, Your Honour. However, the decisions of your, this court, such as Maryland versus Craig, indicate that the hearsay rule is not absolute. Well, and but they
5: go back a long way, and, and it's always been the tradition in our courts that there are hearsay, uh, uh, and that there are exceptions to the hearsay rule, and those exceptions, uh, many of them, were in existence when this provision was adopted. There's no reason to believe it was intended to uh, overrule them. Maybe maybe the the solution lies in in the word witnesses. What constitutes a witness?
1: Well, certainly a witness against the accused must include the person upon whose out-of-court statements the prosecution is relying to obtain the defendant's conviction. Why?
5: Why couldn't witness against you mean the person who testifies before the jury? Well, Your Honor, there's a lot of other evidence against you, but the only witnesses against you are the people who appear in court, and you have the right to confront them and to cross-examine them.
1: The Confrontation Clause was intended to prohibit trials by affidavit, and this court has held that the Confrontation Clause was intended to prohibit trials by anonymous accusers and um, absentee witnesses.
5: Let's, let's add that any witness who appears in person or any witness who provides an affidavit for the specific use of the court at this trial. this still wouldn't fall within that.
1: Well, in essence, an exception to the hearsay rule is similar to testimony that comes under oath because they're both considered reliable. Or In this case, we say affidavits can't be relied upon. But yet here we have unsworn verbal hearsay that's be- being relied upon to obtain the defendant's conviction. That is no more reliable than an affidavit.
5: It depends on whether it's a witness against you or not. It doesn't say all evidence against him. It says the witness is against him. And you're saying that anything that somebody says outside of court, which is used against you at a trial, renders that person a witness against you. That doesn't seem to me self-evident at all.
1: Well, again, Your Honor, I would note yeah. that... As we've recognized, the hearsay rule was intended to prevent trials by anonymous accusers. And what we have in this case...
5: We wouldn't throw away the hearsay rule. We'd still have the hearsay rule in federal courts, and the state courts would still have the hearsay rule in their trials. We're not talking about the hearsay rule. We're talking about the confrontation clause. What is the minimum guarantee of the confrontation clause? And I suggest it may, it may extend to nothing except, except witnesses in the formal sense, somebody who appears at trial or someone who makes a deposition or, or signs an affidavit in preparation for the trial. That would make the confrontation clause make sense, and the states could continue to apply the hearsay rule. We wouldn't stop that, of course.
1: Well, let me suggest a possibility. If, if that were the interpretation adopted by this court, the state could pass a statute that said... All hearsay is admissible in a criminal prosecution, including rumor, innuendo, double, triple, quadruple hearsay. A conviction obtained under such a statute would be exempt from Confrontation Clause scrutiny unless the person who made the rumor was considered a witness against the accused. And, of course, rumors are usually not made in contemplation of litigation. We, we
5: do have a due process clause, too, don't we?
1: Rather vague.
5: Hmm. Well, no, no vaguer than what you, you've turned the confrontation clause into.
1: Now, the confrontation clause does say that the defendant shall be given the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. The state is relying upon the child's out-of-court accusations to obtain the defendant's conviction. This is the primary evidence against the accused, and it's the evidence upon the which the conviction is based Mr.
6: Peterson, can I ask you a question about the Illinois procedure? Uh, Justice O'Connor suggested that you could have called the child to the stand yourself. Could you have done that during the prosecution's case, or could you have only done that during the defense case as a witness on your own? And it could
1: only have done that during his case in chief.
6: So the defendant could only do it during the defense case.
1: That's right.
6: I see. So that if you wanted to file a motion for acquittal at the close of the prosecution's case, you would not have had an opportunity to cross-examine the child at that point.
1: That's correct, Your Honor. Yeah. And, of course, the logical extension of such a procedure where the defendant is not permitted to call the witness until his case would be the prosecution could put on the direct testimony of all its witnesses and prevent the an opportunity from of cross-examining any witnesses until his case is chief, And such a procedure would be, certainly be unfair, and I suggest it would violate the Constitution. For these reasons, I would ask this court to reverse the judgment of the Illinois Appellate Court and remand this case for a new trial. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Peterson. Uh, Ms. Anderson, we'll hear now from you.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The State of Illinois submits this morning that the Court's reasoning in United States v. Zanotti applies to this case as well. The petitioner proposes that the rule of necessity laid out by the Court in Maryland v. Craig is applicable to this case, and we submit that his reliance on Craig is misplaced. Craig involved a procedure used by the State which was intended solely to replace in-court testimony. So as to avoid live face-to-face confrontation with the defendant. And it makes sense that a rule of necessity would apply in a situation like that. And the court has, in fact, held that a rule of necessity does apply to hearsay, which is intended solely to replace live in-court testimony, and specifically that is former testimony. But most admissible hearsay is not simply a substitute for live testimony. It has independent probative value, which is derived from the circumstances under which it's made. For example, let's look first at spontaneous declarations. Because of their immediacy and the stress the declarant is under after experiencing a startling event, the statements are such that they're irreplaceable as probative evidence. The value of that evidence cannot be duplicated on the stand with respect to statements made for purposes of medical treatment or diagnosis, when a, person, a person speaks differently when consulting a doctor for treatment or diagnostic purposes than when testifying on the stand. And those statements also are irreplaceable as substantive evidence.
0: Do you think that's as true of a five-year-old child, uh, Ms. Anderson, as it would be of an adult uh, making a statement to a doctor for, in the course of getting treatment?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, I believe that a child, even at a young age, such as four or five, understands that when he or she is going to the doctor, they're going to an authority figure and that they're going for a certain reason, that is to obtain help. Um, The court has, under the Confrontation Clause, put some restrictions on this particular type of hearsay that does have independent probative value. And mainly the court has focused on the reliability of the statement and the effect that any cross-examination might have.
4: The the state of Illinois has a hearsay exception for child uh, testimony that was not invoked in this case. Is is that correct?
7: That's correct, Your Honor. Um,
4: Can we draw any inference from that, that the the unavailability could not be shown?
7: No, I I don't think that's the case. I I think that... uh, The the prosecution just just decided that they had statements that were squarely within these particular exceptions and didn't feel that it had to resort to the – it is more or less a residual exception just for children in abuse. Well,
4: and and I would take it that it it would cover uh, kinds of testimony that would not be covered by spontaneous declaration or medical testimony, i.e. if the child made the report two weeks later when it couldn't be a spontaneous declaration.
7: That's true.
6: Don't you have some – I know that the, your opponent hasn't differentiated among the five statements here, but wouldn't you have some difficulty with the police officer's statement under a spontaneous declaration if he came in and, and uh, he didn't question the child? That's hardly spontaneous, is it?
7: Well, it, it was still made during the period where this child was still under the stress of this event. Um, all of the statements were made within 45 minutes of this event, and I submit that this child, especially at this young age, was still under – stress and trauma of the event.
6: you think responding to questions from a police officer 45 minutes after the event falls squarely within the spontaneous uh, uh, declaration exception?
7: I think that there are other indications of reliability. The, the statements were all consistent. Um, but do you think
6: for the re- admissibility of statement A, you can rely on the fact that it's consistent with other statements that are admissible? Can they buttress admissibility in that way? Maybe they buttress probative value, but... Uh,
7: no, you I'm, think I'm just you
6: know, in other words, could you have had one three or four weeks later a whole series of statements that were all consistent, but not within any any exception other than being consistent? There's no exception for consistent statements, is there?
7: I agree with you, Your Honor. There are s- certain cases where the uh, the state courts have expanded the exceptions, no. and in in that in in cases such as that, it does um, probably bring the the reliability of the statement into question. And in cases like that, the defendant would probably want to want to cross-examine the child, and he has every right to do so. But if he doesn't
6: – do you agree with your opponent's uh, to answer to my question, that the defendant could not have cross-examined the child during the prosecution's case?
7: I agree with that, yes.
5: Ms. Anderson, I'm, I'd like to get your response to the same question I asked Mr. Peterson. Uh, if – if you acknowledge that the child, when making these declarations to the policeman or to the physician or whoever, is a witness, um, where where do we get the authority to uh, allow that to come in so long as it's reliable? Since, as I read the Constitution, it doesn't say you're entitled to be confronted with the witnesses against you, unless, of course, the witnesses are reliable, in which case you're not entitled to be confronted. Where do we get the authority to...
7: It's just based on on prior case law, Your Honor, and the the state of Illinois uh, assumes, for purposes of argument today, that there is some sort of a a reliability requirement that is is derived from the Confrontation Clause. A literal reading of the Confrontation Clause, as as you're speaking about, would um, call into question whether or not S.G. was actually a witness for purposes of the confrontation clause. And um, the, the, the state of Illinois, probably, if, um, if we weren't taking the position of us assuming that, these were, that she was a witness, would probably agree with you that there is a question there as to whether the confrontation clause does actually apply to a hearsay
4: Well, well, it's not just reliability. Uh, Assume that someone's deposition is taken right after a crime, Mm -hmm. uh, that there's even cross-examination where their memory is fresh. I think you can make a very good argument that that is more reliable reliable. than uh, the person's testimony two years later, but uh, uh, certainly I think it would be inconsistent with our confrontation clause analysis and and our sense of what it ought to mean to permit that. Well, so it's not just reliability.
7: That's true. It's not just reliability. It's, it's actual face-to-face confrontation. And as long as the state is not trying to submit evidence which is intended solely as a replacement for live in-court testimony, say as the situation was in Maryland v. Craig with the closed-circuit television procedure then we're not going to have a a problem with the Confrontation Clause. Well, but
4: it's always a replacement for the out-of-court decorum.
7: It's a replacement, but it's not intended solely as a replacement. When the statement is made, that is not the the purpose in mind. Um, The statement is admissible, and um, the, the, the statement comes in because it's made under circumstances that give it independent probative value that can't be duplicated on the witness stand. Um, If I could just go on. This court has specifically held that once reliability is shown with a hearsay statement, either because it comes in under a firmly rooted exception or particularized guarantees of trustworthiness are found, um, that statement, it's sufficiently clear that that statement is trustworthy enough that cross-examination would probably be of marginal utility. Now, if that's the case and these hearsay statements are going to come in, um, what, what would be the purpose of a blanket rule requiring the state to produce the declarant each and every time it wants to admit a hearsay statement. As the court noted in Anadi, such a rule wouldn't actually work to keep any evidence out. The, uh, the statement will come in if the declarant is shown to be unavail- unavailable, or it will also come in if he's available and produced for trial. Uh, the court also noticed, or noted in the nadi that such a rule wouldn't enhance the truth-seeking process over and above what exists without it. Uh, the, if the prosecution doesn't call a declarant, and for all practical purposes, I want to make it clear that the prosecution will, by and large, call a complaining witness or an eyewitness to help prove its case. But there are going to be circumstances, certain circumstances where the state may feel that the witness would not be exceptionally effective or, in the case of small children, possibly the, the prosecutor would want to keep the child from being put in a traumatic situation. And if that is the case but the defendant still feels that he needs to call this witness, he can certainly do so under the compulsory process clause. But the state submits that these, the case, these cases where the state does decide not to call a complaining witness or a victim, such, in this case, such as in this case, and the defendant does feel that the testimony will be of some value to him, those cases are so small, so small in number that it doesn't justify changing the law as it now stands to require the state to produce the declarant in, with these particular types of statements each and every time it decides to, to enter one of these statements into evidence. Finally, I'd like to make one last point, and that's the effect that such an unavailability rule would have on the courts. The, the effect on the courts up to this time has been minimal because the this necessity rule has only applied to cases involving prior testimony. Would you
8: argue argue that the same result would obtain here if the child hadn't uh, been available? I mean, you did did make the child available.
7: The prosecution did try to put her on the stand, yes.
8: Well, you you would be arguing, you're making the same argument, I suppose, if the
6: child hadn't hadn't even
8: been in town.
7: Basically, yes, it's the same argument, that the compulsory process clause would provide the defendant enough protection if he decided that he did want to call the witness. So the fact
8: that the child was in the courtroom doesn't help your case very much? It certainly helps our case. It does how? How?
7: Well, it shows that the state made a good-faith effort. To call this witness, it it demonstrates that by and large and for all practical purposes, the state will call witnesses of this type.
8: How is that relevant to the confrontation clause issue?
7: It's it's relevant in the sense that the defendant is, is... implying that the state is trying to get in certain evidence, hearsay statements of this kind, just to avoid putting these witnesses on the stand. Mm -hmm. And and that's just not the case.
6: (laughs) No, but if I understand the position in your brief, uh, even if the state were doing that, this evidence would still be admissible.
5: If, that, even if the state true.
6: could have put the person on but just decided tactically it would be better not to and even the, arranged for the child to be in Europe or someplace, uh, w- what would be the result in those facts? Would the, would the hearsay come in or not? Yes.
7: Under, our, under our position, yes, the hearsay would come in. Right. But I want to assure you that for all practical uh, purposes Illinois that, won't do anything Illinois that bad
6: would... and all so far. But yeah. the rule you asked for would allow that. The rule you asked for would allow that. we
8: uh, We should consider it uh, as though the state had hid the witness
7: had hid hid yeah. the witness N- no i don't i don 't believe that you should consider the case from that perspective
5: right. are you sure it would come in if the state had actually <laughs> taken uh, if the state is hiding the witness, the witness is not unavailable i mean as, as I understand your position it 's if the witness is either there or unavailable, it should come in. But if the witness is not is neither neither there nor unavailable, you so if
7: that that's true. Okay. If we're assuming that an unavailability requirement, applies, if the state is
5: hiring is hiding the witness. The witness is not really unavailable, right. and I think the witness is not really unavailable if the state has uh, spirited the witness off to some that's foreign true. country. That's
7: true. That's true. But also that that's speaking from the assumption that an unavailability requirement. Is necessary in order to comply with the confrontation
6: clause. Sure, the point is, if there is no unavailability requirement, there is no reason—at least in the Sixth Amendment—to to prevent the state from doing precisely that. We just discard availability as any relevant for any re- relevant purpose under uh, Sixth Amendment analysis of hearsay exceptions. I but thought that was your—that's that's not your our position. position our think. position
7: is that the unavailability requirement is constitutionally mandated if. The evidence is intended solely to replace live testimony. Yeah. And I think that's what the purposes of the confrontation clause demand.
0: Well, if, you, if the state were to spirit a witness away, there were, might be a violation of some other principle of the Sixth Amendment. I suppose the right to call witnesses.
7: That's true. That's true.
8: Uh, be a confrontation issue, would it?
7: I don't think so. <clears throat> the state of Illinois submits that there has been no showing by the defendant of a a sufficient justification for a rule such as he proposes. And we therefore ask this Court to affirm the judgment of the Illinois Appellate Court.
0: Thank you, Ms. Anderson. Uh, Mr. Nightingale, we'll hear from you.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court... The federal government's submission, in essence, is that this case is indistinguishable in every meaningful sense from Anadi. Anati makes clear that the rule of necessity that the court had outlined in Ohio versus Roberts is reserved for the situation in which the government attempts to uh, admit hearsay, which is essentially a less desirable substitute for live testimony. And that rationale is just as inapplicable to the statements before the court today as it was to the co conspirator statements involved in Anadi. The decisive feature of the statements involved in Anadi, the court uh, said, was that they were made in a context very different from trial, which gave them special evidentiary significance. And the same can fairly be said of the two hearsay exceptions before the court today. State and federal rules of evidence universally provide for the admission of excited utterances. After uh, many years of experience with those sorts of statements, a consensus has emerged that statements made while a person remains under the emotional influence of a startling event have special reliability. Those statements are made at a point when the person's memory is as clear as it will ever be and before there has been an opportunity for conscious revision or uh, well, Mr. external Mr. Nightingale,
2: influence. what about the statement that was made 45 minutes later to the policeman? Suppose it had been three days later, whatever scenario you might imagine. At some point, I guess, one could say uh, that perhaps excited utterance exception shouldn't cover it. But that's a matter of state law. How, how do you deal with that in the context of the confrontation clause challenge?
9: At, at some point, certainly, uh, a state court finding that a statement was an excited utterance would take it so far beyond the accepted core uh, definition of that hearsay exception that it could no longer be regarded as firmly rooted. The court has dealt with similar situations, for instance, in Dutton versus Evans, where a state was admitting co-conspirator statements uh, that were not in furtherance of the conspiracy, but rather during the so-called concealment phase of the conspiracy. There there was also uh, uh, actually the the name of the case escapes me right now, but the point is that if a state application of a hearsay exception takes it outside uh, the, the, the accepted, firmly rooted definition, then the court could appropriately uh, consider the particular application.
2: And I suppose there's some question here about statements of a very young child to a doctor. It's not clear that a child would um, see the same need for uh, honest statements to obtain treatment that uh, an older person might experience.
9: I wouldn't think so, Your Honor. Every parent who has told a child that the doctor has instructed the child to eat his or her vegetables knows that a doctor has a particular uh, standing in a child's life. It's an authority figure, a benign figure uh, who who is viewed as someone who Do you think has. That's
2: true of a child of, let's say, two years of age. Uh,
9: again, there comes a time when uh, when the child is. <laughs> incapable of, of perhaps making a, a reliable statement, but certainly that is not the case here. And I think that a child of very young years, ch- children, uh, many children are taken to the doctor beginning at, at a point when they're days old and continuously, and I think by two years old, most children recognize the role that the doctor plays in their lives. I, I'd like to return briefly to the police officer's statements, statements to the police officer here. I don't think that there is any indication that that, the admission of those statements was in any way outside the mainstream of excited utterance.
8: As I I say, as the case comes here, uh, uh, we judge it on the basis that uh, all these statements were were within some recognized hearsay exception because uh,
9: that, uh, that, that that is the case isn't challenged. I agree with your Honor, and and not only that, they're within the core of the accepted hearsay exceptions. There was evidence here that the child had been been awoken at 4 a.m. in the morning, that she had been restrained in a way that caused injuries to her face, that she had been crying very hard, uh, and and, and accepting as well her account of what happened to her, I think it was well within the trial court's discretion to conclude that the uh, ex- the, the state of excitement, which is essentially the, the guarantee of reliability, persisted for forty five years I, well,
8: I got you interrupted uh, uh, Would you think the prosecution would have to have make the child available in the courtroom
9: i don 't believe it 's required it was it, the, in Anadi, the holding was that it is not necessary as a precondition
8: well what if the, what if the defense uh, 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 says, well, the, the, uh, we notice that the uh, child isn't in the courtroom. We'd like to ask the prosecution, is the,
9: is the child available? Uh, and the prosecution says, I don't know. The, the defendant has the right to secure a subpoena, and the state then has an obligation to use reasonable efforts mm-hmm. to, to secure the, the, the child's production at that point. So that uh, that is the mechanism through which the child is brought to the courtroom if, if the defendant desires.
6: May I ask you a question, mister Nightingale? In this case, we've got two. That of course, we've got two exceptions. One is the well-recognized spontaneous one. The other is the physician exception, which, as I understand it, in Illinois was pursuant to a 1988 statute. Uh, what, what leeway does a state have in creating new exceptions to the hearsay rule?
9: Your Honor, the, the State had, before the statute was passed, a certainly didn't, just to get my hypothetical. Uh, Can so they this is not a, a, in any sense a, a novel application. Well, it was even applied to Illinois. a nurse
6: as well as a doctor, which is a little bit novel, I think.
9: But, uh, again, <clears throat> the, the hearsay rule has, has undergone a relatively... Uh, constant period of evolution. That's right. And over time, uh, certain exceptions, which are widely recognised, many. But my times real codified, question to get
6: to the heart of it: Do you think it has to be historically recognised, or is it sufficient if you if you come up with a new exception that seems to be t- totally reliable and sensible?
9: What, what What would your view? I think when it's when the new exception has achieved some general degree of acceptance, I wouldn't put great. Uh, weight on any particular set of hearsay ex- exceptions that existed at an arbitrary point in the past. I think that recent developments in which rule makers have made efforts to codify the best of what experience is brought forward are the best indications of what are firmly rooted. Mr. So we know. have an
6: evolving definition of what's, yeah. what's permissible, I yeah.
5: I thought it was the government's position that this, uh, that this material is not really covered by the Confrontation Clause anyway. Are you abandoning that?
9: No. It's our position that the case can be decided within the framework of Anadi, and in addition, we think that this case presents the court with an opportunity, if it's inclined to do so, to consider whether every out-of-court hearsay declarant is, in fact, a witness. It's our position that the language of the clause and the historical context from which it emerges supports the view that it was designed, essentially, to prevent the recurrence of an abuse that had characterized some notorious English trials.
4: So this is really an, an independent argument from the line of reasoning you were pursuing with Justice Stevens.
9: That's true. That There are two grounds available. Perhaps the narrower ground is simply to apply a to these facts. These hearsay exceptions have this, admit evidence having the same sort of independent evidentiary significance as if, an if a we,
4: If we adopted uh, your suggested formulation uh, in this second respect, uh, this broader formulation, I take it, we would render I- irrelevant much of the analysis in Anadi and Green.
9: Uh, Green, no, because I think Green involved out-of-court statements that were prior testimony and statements to authorities in a legal context. But certainly in Anadi, yes, the the uh, under our view. Uh, the threshold question would be, were the statements made by the absent co-conspirator made by a witness? Under our analysis, the answer would be no, and it would be unnecessary, therefore, well, to consider suppose, other issues.
8: Suppose the prosecution offers and has admitted an out-of-court statement that no one would claim was within a recognized hearsay uh, uh, exception. Well, that uh, person who made the statement is no more a witness for Confrontation Clause purposes as uh, some other one. So the limit on that sort of evidentiary error is the due process clause?
9: That and the fact that the rules of evidence are a two-way street.
8: Oh, I know. But here's a, here, this is a state court, the state court's got a rule of evidence, for example. Uh, they, just, they just admitted it. And uh, they, some, for some reason, the state Supreme Court affirmed the conviction. If we were going to reverse it, it'd have to be on the due
9: process issue, I suppose. Uh, that would be so. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Nightingale. Mr. Peterson, do you have rebuttal? You have 12 minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to respond again to the suggestion that the child was not a witness against the accused. Under the Solicitor General's approach, someone is a witness against the accused if they give Testimony, or they give statements in contemplation of litigation. And I would suggest even under that approach, the child in this case was a witness against the accused. A police officer interviewed the child 45 minutes after the alleged incident. At that time, the police officer was aware that an allegation of a crime had been made. The child at this point was no longer excited. The police officer testified that she was calm. He asked the child leading questions, and she responded. I would suggest that these statements fit the definition of being made in contemplation of litigation. In addition, last year in Idaho versus Wright, this court applied Confrontation Clause analysis to almost the exact situation we have here, statements by a child to an examining position. In this case,
5: excuse me, you think the child was contemplating litigation? No, I mean when you say in, when the government says in contemplation of litigation, I think it I think it means to say that, that the declarant is contemplating litigation. So it's it's at a deposition the declarant knows the deposition is going to be used in later litigation or something of that sort. There's no question here that the that, that the declarant was was not contemplating litigation.
1: I'd agree that with that. And under that approach, I would suppose that a child would never be considered a witness against the accused as children. Most of their statements, I would suggest, they never contemplate that they'll be made in contemplation of litigation. And I would also note, that in this case, the doctor who interviewed the child testified that he took notes in contemplation of litigation. As at volume 6, page 63 of the record. There have also been much discussion about the inherent reliability of the statements submitted in this case. As I mentioned before, the statements due to the police officer, which were admitted under the spontaneous utterance exception. The basis for that is the child is excited. As I mentioned before, the child was no longer excited at this point. The police officer said she was calm. And certainly the statements were not spontaneous. They were made after she had talked to two others and in response to leading questions. Also, the statements to the nurse and the doctor. Under similar circumstances, in Idaho v. Wright, this court held that Statements such as these were unreliable. The basis for that exception relates to the details relating to medical treatment. However, in this case, the appellate court made a broad interpretation that allowed the details of the alleged offense. And under these circumstances, I would suggest that the statements in this case do not fit the historical hearsay rationale. There are no other questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Peterson. The case is submitted.